Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 3.5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. DJ Ficky was a devoted father who got involved with the wrong crowd. Tragically, he lost his life at the hands of one of these people. His death has been ruled a suicide despite all evidence pointing towards a homicide. His death needs to be reclassified, and his sister Amanda is trying to get as much media attention as possible to make this happen. Welcome to or welcome back to the Great Unsolved podcast. This is a podcast where I, Alexis, dive into unsolved cases to promote justice for the victims. All of our links are in the description, and if you haven't already, please go check out our new website because it looks so much better than it did before. Also in the description will be links to all of the other podcast coverage of this case. I am only one of many who has covered this case, and I want as much information as possible to get to you. So go check out the other podcast episodes of this case, and let's jump into the rabbit hole that is the wrongly classified death of DJ Ficky. Amanda, who is DJ's sister, has become a huge advocate for this case. On Twitter, go check out the hashtag JusticeForDJ and use it to spread information about this case. She provided police files, recordings, interviews, 
etc. for me and probably all the other podcasts who have covered this case. And I would like to start off this episode by sharing a timeline she wrote up starting on September 14th, 2016 and going to October 3rd, 2016, which is the day of DJ's tragic death. 9-14-16. DJ sent me, as in Amanda, his sister, a voicemail stating his current situation with his wife, that she was back with Mark, and stated that he was going to try to find somewhere to go, and that I had that information just in case I needed it. I do not know if he ever left there on this date or not. 9-18-16. DJ was sending out several messages on Facebook, reaching out to friends and family to try and find somewhere to go. He was also going to different friends and family, trying to find somewhere to stay. He ended up back at Mark's when he couldn't find anywhere to go. I was never aware of this. 9-24-16. DJ's friend Misty Croft and her daughter Savannah came and picked up DJ at Mark's and took him to get something to eat. During this time, DJ told both of them that Mark had been trying to kill him. DJ told them about Mark jumping him when we got out of the shower and putting a knife to his throat, Mark jumping him with a baseball bat, and DJ knocking Mark's tooth out with a golf club. Misty said he was covered in bruises and that they would be consistent with a bat or a golf club. He also told them about Mark giving him a hot shot of drugs that made him act erratically after the shot and then very sick for a few days later. He also told them that if anything ever happened to him, to have Mark and Brandy investigated because he would never hurt himself. They rode around a while and parked in a parking lot and just talked. Afterward, DJ wanted to go back to Mark's to be with Brandy. 9.30.16. Brandy and someone else dropped DJ off at a family friend's house. They were not home, so DJ walked to our aunt's home. When he was there, he told our aunt about Mark jumping him and that Mark was trying to kill him. He told her he was worried Mark was going to try and do something stupid and try and take the kids away from his mother. Our aunt also noticed DJ told her on this date about another altercation where DJ and Brandy were outside the camper in the swing talking about moving back in with Kathy, which is DJ's mom and Mark must have overheard the conversation because he came out of the camper, put a gun to Brandy's head, and told her he would have her leaving out of there in a body bag and then made her go inside the camper. DJ told our aunt that he was scared to do anything about Mark's behavior at the time due to him thinking that Mark may shoot Brandy. Our aunt let him get something to eat, and then he asked for a ride to the Dodds Ave area. She and... David witnessed all this information and dropped him off on Dodd's Ave. Later that night, he was back at Mark's with Brandy. They got back together that night. 10-1-16. DJ had called our mother to check on the kids and to talk to them. He spoke to his little boy Jack, and Jack told him he wanted a choo-choo train for Christmas. After talking to him, he talked to our mom again and told her not to buy Jack the train for Christmas, that he wanted to be the one that got it for him. He was happy during that whole conversation and in good spirits. 10-3-16. At around 1.30 central time, I got a call from my mom. I said hello a few times and didn't get a response from her at all. I could hear her crying and yelling. I assumed she was arguing with her husband. She hung up. I called her back immediately, and she was hysterical. I told her I couldn't understand what was wrong, and she shouted out, DJ's dead. I kept saying, no, 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 as I ran to the bedroom to wake my husband up and yelled to him, Rick, DJ's dead. I went over to the bed and fell to the floor. I was in shock and shaking uncontrollably. I still had my mom on the phone. She said, Amanda, you have to take me up there. I told her, Mom, you don't need to see that. She said she had to get her baby. I told my husband he would have to take her up there because there was no way I could drive. On their way to Mark's home, my mom got a call 
from who she thought was a detective, but was Dwayne Wilson, the coroner. She told him that her son did not kill himself and that she had text messages on her phone where he was texting her and was afraid for his life. Mr. Wilson told her they knew it was self-inflicted because they had a witness that seen him shoot himself, but he would send him for an autopsy. Once my mom arrived, everyone was leaving the scene. My mom caught Detective Ellenberg getting into his car, and she told him she wanted everyone's hands checked for gun residue. Mr. Ellenberg told her he had already gotten tests from everyone. My mom asked if Mark was tested, and Mr. Ellenberg asked who Mark was, then realized it was Marshall. Before Mr. Ellenberg left, Mark asked if they could start cleaning up the mess, and he told them he did not see why not. They burned the love seat my brother was sitting on. The scene was never roped off or treated like a crime scene. They actually let my mom walk into the trailer and see the aftermath of my brother's blood everywhere. Brandy had jumped into our SUV, wanting to leave with my mom and husband, but my husband told her she wasn't going with them, because at the time, we didn't know exactly what happened, and we were upset with Brandy. Everyone left. So I read that off just to give you an overview of the time directly before his death and the day of his death according to family members, but more specifically his sister since she is the one who wrote it. So now that you have that background knowledge of like where he was, who he was with, kind of what happened, we could get into all the other materials, starting with the three 911 calls. So the setting of where these 911 calls takes place is inside Mark's trailer where it seems that Mark, DJ, and Brandy were all living at the time. Just prior to the 911 calls, it is reported that DJ was texting friends and family, asking for rides out of there and places to stay, because according to him, his life depended on it. DJ had reason to believe that he would not survive if he stayed there, and that makes everything even more damning in this case. The reason there are three different phone calls is because the one calling who was Mark, who is also our main suspect in this case, hung up multiple times for a seemingly unknown reason. I understand that panic can be present. Obviously, everyone deals with these kind of traumatic situations differently, but I think the main thing people need to focus on in these situations is staying on the line and getting help for the injured person, because that's the only thing that's going to save the victim's life. Station 2, respond. 
There are like a few things to note in this initial call. Mark states, quote, we got a guy that shot himself, end quote, which kind of seems to imply that he didn't really know the guy who shot himself. Those who know the victims, you normally hear them say, so-and-so shot themselves, or my husband, my friend, whatever, shot themselves. This could be nothing. Once again, everyone reacts to traumatic situations differently, so don't come after me if you think that, because I understand. But from my experience in looking at other cases, and just me taking a lot of time in psychology classes... It seems like he is trying to detach himself from the situation, even if it's subconsciously right from the start. People will subconsciously say things that can tell their true feelings or their true intentions, and that happens a lot in cases. Mark also states he was trying to get the gun away from DJ near the front door when it went off. So that sets our scene of the crime. In this second call, Mark stated that the damage done to DJ was in his mouth, and he also confirms that there is an exit wound. From this call, I kind of noticed that Mark seems to talk about himself a lot. It is apparent in the first and third calls as well, but I kind of just really stuck onto it when I listened to this specific call. In addition to that, he also takes a fairly long time to answer questions about DJ. And this is a completely personal opinion, but I think in that situation, no one should be worried about themselves if they are not the one that's injured. Their sole focus should be on the victim and getting them help. So it seems kind of odd to me that he is so focused on himself throughout these calls. 
And just a disclaimer, I'm sorry for the audio. 911 calls just always seem to be hard to understand. Maybe it's the software or maybe it's just because people are panicked talking on there. But this is as clean as I could get these calls. Growing a business brings pressure. It's not easy to maintain momentum and still keep employees engaged. Fortunately, there's Insperity. Their scalable HR solutions help me with hiring, training, HR administration, and compliance while giving my employees competitive benefit options. When my people are able to thrive, my business can adapt and prosper. With Insperity, nothing seems impossible. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. So, how does it feel when you play Roll Up to Win with Tim Hortons? Buy a hot or cold beverage using the Tim's app and find out. Roll in the app for a chance to win prizes ranging from free coffee and donuts to a Universal Orlando Resort vacation or a sweet car. Oh, don't forget the TV. And this year, every roll is a shot at a $1,000 daily giveaway drawing for two $500 prizes. Roll up to win and get treated by Tim's. No purchase necessary. Account registration required. 50 US and DC. 18 plus entered by 4223. See rules at rolluptowin.com for free entry of full details. Void in Florida and where prohibited. it's obvious that a new operator is trying to talk to Mark and trying to get a little more information. Maybe the old operator just thought she might be better at the job. But Mark here admits to moving the gun after the shot goes off. Then in a move that I think is a very wrong and unprofessional, the operator tells him to move it once again. I think it's fairly obvious why this is not okay. This is tampering with crime scene evidence. Whether it was a suicide or not, there, it's still a crime scene, there's still evidence, and it should not be moved so that police can thoroughly go through it and decide if it's a suicide or not. Messing with a vital piece of evidence like this is something that could have made this case absolutely impossible to categorize. And on top of this, the operator says, get the gun, make sure like it's not loaded, do all that but it is a one-shot shotgun that belonged to Mark. So it seems he should have known this and could have told her that before he moved the gun, but he refrained from doing so. From the limited crime scene photos that I was able to look over, it shows a very cluttered and messy trailer, which makes for crime scene evidence collection to be much more difficult because it's kind of hard to see you know, what individual pieces have blood on them or have some kind of human remains on them. However, police chose not to collect really anything, even main pieces of evidence that should have, without question, been collected. They didn't even collect the couch that DJ had died on for evidence. Police basically told Mark he could clean up completely 
so he subsequently burned the couch. In addition to that, police did not question anyone on the same day. They waited until about a week later to do so, and this would have given the witnesses and Mark ample time to get their stories lined up. The autopsy was done on October 5th of 2016 by Natasha Grandi. The gunshot wound was from front to back, left to right, and slightly downward. The gunshot entry wound was about five inches below the top of the head on the face and about one inch to the left of the midline of the face. If you don't know what the midline is, it's just like if you were to draw a line down the middle of your face, cutting your nose in half, lips in half, like that. The exit wound was about 6.5 inches from the top of the head and about 6.25 inches to the right of the midline. An easier way to understand this is the entrance wound was basically at the corner, left corner of the mouth, and the exit wound was near the bottom of the right ear, essentially. It was explained as an intraoral gunshot wound, which means the barrel of the gun was in the mouth with the mouth closed. The reason I am explaining the entrance and exit wound so much is to give you a clear picture of why it couldn't have, or most likely couldn't have been, self-inflicted. First off, DJ was shot from the left side when he is right-handed. It is pretty much uniform that when you shoot a gun, you use your dominant hand to pull the trigger. That's kind of how police can determine, like, oh, what should we be looking for in suspects? Was the person shot on, like, the right side? Should we be looking for a left-handed subject? Something like that. And... I'm right-handed, and I don't think I'd even be able to pull a trigger with my left finger. It's just not that strong. In addition to that evidence, his exit wound was also lower than the entrance wound, which means he was shot at a downward angle. This would be very difficult, if not impossible, for one to do themselves, and there would be no point. Not to be too overly morbid, but generally, when someone shoots themselves or plans to, they go for the bullet to hit the brain because that is the most surefire way. If he was indeed trying to commit suicide, why would he do the opposite and make himself uncomfortable in his last moments? There were two things that did not happen during the autopsy that definitely should have. Those were that DJ's hands were not tested for gunshot residue and his arms were not measured. This could have given the information to show that it was indeed a homicide. If DJ's arms weren't long enough to shoot himself like that, then there's no way he could have. And if there was no gunshot residue, he obviously didn't. THC was found in his system during a toxicology, and so was methamphetamine. Even DJ himself and his family had stated that he had a drug problem, so it's no secret, but it also has very little to do with this case, except for the fact that the people he ended up around when he was killed also had drug problems. A drug problem is a sickness, and it is not something that should matter in these cases. Only the murder should matter in these cases. From friends, family, and even witness accounts, DJ was not depressed at all, he did not voice any suicidal ideologies any time before this alleged suicide. In an interview Amanda did with one of the witnesses to DJ's death, she did state that DJ would say, quote, I'll just kill myself, end quote. However, she states that he used this as a cop-out to get his way, which, especially in my generation, is really prevalent, so I can understand how this would happen and I don't think it points to him being suicidal. To corroborate this is the fact that DJ was making future plans, and I'm sure you hear that all the time in shows, books, podcasts, whatever. The fact is that those who have a real plan to end their lives most often do not make future plans because they don't plan to be here and they see no need to. However, even with all of this evidence, Natasha Grandi stated this, quote, As per investigation, Donald was last heard expressing suicidal ideations. His friend then heard a popping sound, 
and saw Donald with a shotgun in his mouth. Based on information available at this time, the manner of death is certified as suicide. End quote. Eventually, DJ's family hired a private investigator named Eric Eccles, who had worked on big cases in the past and is known for doing a good job. Here's what he had to say on the case. My name is Eric Eccles, and I'm a private investigator. I was hired by Amanda Shirley and her family to look into the death of their brother, DJ. DJ's death was ruled a suicide, and in fact, it was actually a homicide. Based on the factual evidence that was obtained through witness interviews, um, police reports, the polygraph examination, all of these things clearly identify and show that DJ's death was a homicide. Some of the evidence that was identified, there was an eyewitness who stated that the person of interest actually went and got the gun and held it to DJ's head. There was evidence where um, a 911 tape where the 911 operator gave specific instructions for the person of interest to tamper with the crime scene. There was no gun residue test done on DJ's hand. Uh, there's just countless number of mistakes. The coroner did not have all the information needed to um, solidify or to do her investigation as far as the autopsy was concerned and to rule it uh, a homicide. So again, there was a lot of different things that happened and occurred that led to um, a misjustice being done and ruling this a suicide. My job was actually to get this information, get all the evidence that I could, and try to get them to overturn the suicide to a homicide so justice can be done and the person of interest can be arrested. Again, my name is Eric Eccles, and I'm a private investigator. Eventually, after looking into the case for a while, Eric Eccles went back to Natasha Grandi with all the evidence he had found and asked her to look over the original autopsy again to see if she could reclassify it. Hi, Mr. Eccles. My yes. name is Dr. Grandi. How are you? Hey, how you doing, Dr. Grandi? Doing well. I'm glad you remember me. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> So I just wanted to let you know we got the toxicology report back on Mr. Ficky, mm -hmm. and it showed uh, stimulants that were present and not any depressants in mm -hmm. his drug, uh, mm -hmm. in his blood. And based on that, I am going to stick with the cause and manner of death that are listed in the autopsy report. And if you need a copy of the toxicology report, you can request that via open records, which I believe you been in touch with to get copies of the autopsy report and other items as well. So to make sure I understand, the toxicology report came back and the drugs that were found doesn't indicate that it was a homicide? You're sticking with suicide? It, it shows a stimulant that's present. Uh -huh. And based on that information, there's not anything that would appear to have rendered him unable to defend himself and it appears that it is most consistent with a suicide still huh even after all the other evidence yes oh huh. <laughs> okay and and even i mean did, was there a um a firearm residue test done on Mr. Ficky before he was cremated? Let me... Because I didn't see that in your report. It is not routinely performed unless it is requested. Let me check through the evidence and see if... I don't recall doing one. Let's see. Evidence for firearms. Let me see what that has. I believe that's just projectiles. Just one minute, please. My system goes a little slow, mm -hmm. so I'm trying to open it. Firearms. It, yes, those are just the projectiles. So, no, I did not do a firearm uh, gunshot residue collection. It was not requested at the time, and that is not routinely performed. So, we really don't know that he had the shotgun in his hand and fired it if there was no residue. Test it. Well, that gets into the validity of 
gunshot residue, which I believe you should probably speak to a firearms expert on. Which I am. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So in order to, to get the toxicology report, to just do another open records? Mm-hmm. Or is yes, it, you can uh, do another open records request, and then you should be able to get a copy of the toxicology report that way. It's not nothing since you know who I am, and I've done the already done and open records for all of the records for the case. Can it just be sent to me? I don't believe it can because this was done after you had requested the records at that time. Mm-hmm. But I think an uh, open records is standing, isn't it? Honestly, I'm not aware because all of these requests get directed to the open records, but I never actually give records to people, so I'm not sure what that okay. procedure is and what I'd be allowed to give you. So you could contact them and see if that's still a standing thing and they would be able to send it over to you. Okay, so it was a stimulant. What drug was found in there? What was the stimulant? Uh, he had methamphetamine. So he had meth? Yes. And that stimulant having meth in the system, I'm just trying to make sure I understand, would, would not have prevented him from defending himself? It, it's a stimulant, so it would make it, he would be active. It, he would be active. Okay, so, and I'm just I'm just asking questions here. So, if someone holds a shotgun to your head, he has a stimulant, and he grabs the barrel, wouldn't that be active? Remember, in this case, it's an intraoral, so the barrel was inside of the mouth with the mouth closed. Okay. So he couldn't have been, and I'm just asking, he couldn't have been asleep or anything, and the guy put the gun in his mouth. Well, and that's why we were checking to see if depressants were present in his system, and they were not. And there was no depressants. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I was clear on what your what your findings were. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, ma'am. Bye. Okay. So let me just kind of recap that call for you. Basically, Grandi states that since DJ's toxicology shown meth, which is a stimulant, and no depressants, it's a suicide. She said, quote, would not have prevented him from defending himself. He would be active, end quote. Now, in the call, I'm sure you heard um, Eric Eccles, the PI, say, well, if he was grabbing the end of the gun, isn't that active? And she said yes, and then it kind of just ended with that conversation. When the PI asks if DJ could have been asleep, Grandi says no, because there were no depressants found. I don't know a ton about drugs. I know what a depressant versus a stimulant is and basic stuff. But to my knowledge, I think you can still fall asleep while on a stimulant. It's not 100% proven you'll be awake the entire time. Therefore, I don't think she should have said that so matter-of-factly. A little bit later in the call, Eccles asks if a gunshot residue test was done, and Grandi states, quote, No, I did not do a firearm gunshot residue collection. It was not requested, end quote. I've never gone to medical school or wherever medical examiners go. I'm assuming it's some kind of medical school, but I find it kind of obvious that if only just to confirm suicide, a gunshot residue test should be done but I don't know the basics of the medical examiner's office and what is required for them to do. The last piece of information about the autopsy I want to talk about is something that just seems so weird to me. So Laura Petler and Associates Death Investigations was a firm who worked with the family. Through their investigation, they found that out of 44 autopsy photos, 37 were missing from DJ's file. So the ME had an explanation for this. They stated that those were pictures of different bodies. Apparently, they're claiming to take pictures of multiple bodies at once, which in itself I don't think is wrong. Maybe it's just efficient for them, and if so, that's okay. That's what they do. But not all of these pictures available in DJ's file are in order. It's not like pictures 1 through 7. 
It's like two pictures of DJ, then 10 missing, then one of DJ, then another five missing, and just goes on like that. So it doesn't make sense for their efficiency or their organization system to take pictures of the bodies like this. That would just make it extremely confusing. If for some reason they did take a few pictures of one body, move to the next one, and make their rounds like that multiple times, I think it's very unprofessional of them to do that in the first place, but also to put all of these photos in DJ's file and then have to take 37 out. However, the other theory here is that this could be some sort of cover-up. Maybe they took all of these pictures and found that something in every one of those 37 contradicted their official ruling of suicide. If you remember back a few weeks ago, I did an episode on the Kendrick Johnson case, another case in Georgia that was investigated wrongly, if not completely ruled wrongly. And it kind of just seems like at this point, something is going on with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. So how does it feel when you play Roll Up to Win with Tim Hortons? Buy a hot or cold beverage using the Tim's app and find out. Roll in the app for a chance to win prizes ranging from free coffee and donuts to a Universal Orlando resort vacation or a sweet car. Oh, don't forget the TV. And this year, every roll is a shot at a $1,000 daily giveaway drawing for two $500 prizes. Roll up to win and get treated by Tim's. No purchase necessary. Account registration required. 50 US and DC. 18 plus entered by 4223. See rules at rolluptowin.com for free entry of full details. Void in Florida and where prohibited. Welcome to BreezeLine, where you'll say, ta-ta, T-Mobile, because we've got more reliable home internet that's a whole lot faster. In fact, 10 times faster. No, seriously, because we have real internet backed by our fiber-powered network. And T-Mobile, well, they just have a 5G cellular network. So act now to get superior home internet. Find your perfect speed with prices starting at just $19.99 a month for 24 months. Terms and conditions apply. Go to BreezeLine.com to learn more. are going to move on to the interviews from both the police investigation, Eric Eccles' investigation, and even one of Amanda's own interviews with a witness. First, I want you guys to listen to the interview of Mark during the initial police investigation. Remember, it was Mark's gun, they were at Mark's house, and he is the prime suspect because he had something going on with DJ's wife before so it is plausible to think maybe he wanted to get rid of the other man. You said five times I went in? When, when you took the gun from him? He was sitting in the chair. And when you went in, where were you? Were you standing up? You sitting down? No, I was standing up. I just walked out of the bedroom. I, uh, I, I want to ask that you do something, because I am just really confused. Okay. Now, I, I won't make you do this if you don't want to, but it'll help me understand. I got a shotgun in here. Can I go get it and we'll make sure it's empty and you show me what we're talking about? Because I'm having a hard time understanding how you're talking about he was holding the gun. He had the gun. What? The gun was like this long. Well, and I've got a short shotgun. Can I get it? Yeah. Is that all right with yeah. you? Yeah. Just for an example. It's a, it's a different kind of gun, I'm sure. But, but I wouldn't miss that on nobody. I said to myself, I wouldn't have touched another one now. It's empty. I'm going to say to boot. Now, you're going to have to walk me through this because I am just going to. Let's talk about let's big me... chairs. Like big chairs. Who think me and you got both in here? Well, show me how he was holding it's the gun. You, you direct me how. Well, you said... when I first seen the gun, the gun was down in the chair arm. Way down here, you know, it's got a big pillow over it. He come up out of the out of it like this, but kind of I seen him. He was at the gun like this right here, and he had his thumb just like that. Right. And he was trying to put it right here under his chin. Like that? Yeah, but the barrel longer. The but, barrel on his yeah, was longer? No, on yours, because his was like had the chair on right here. Right. 
and outside DJ, man. I said, what the fuck, man? And I went, I got to hold the gun. I grabbed the gun like this, and I'm pulling, and he's trying to put it back to his face like that, and I'm pulling away. And when I was sitting there, I turned around like this, and I got it away from his face. You know, got the gun away from him, trying to keep the barrel out from his face in case it did go off. Because at the time, I didn't know if the trigger was pulled back or the hammer. Well, when I yanked the gun like that, the gun, I had the barrel point toward the wall. When I yanked it like that, it come loose from his hand. I kept my hand over the trigger. Like pulling and like it did. Yeah. It came loose. Like that. So now I got my hand over this. Right. I'm sitting there. And he's pulling the gun, trying to put it back. Both hands, one hand, two hands. Oh, yeah, both his hands. So he's, he's got both hands back. up here. And no one of them was down here trying to move my hand. And I'm like, DJ, please, just give me the goddamn gun, man. I said, you don't want to do nothing like you. And about that time, my arm yanked. And it's a boom. And where is Brandy in all this shit? She's the one that got my arm. She was at the door with like, you know what a quarter door is? Uh, I mean, open quarter way. She was out on the porch. She stepped in and she saw Mark Twitter and grabbed my arm and it said boom. And I was like, I mean, it was like a dream after that. The shot, I mean, I don't even think I even heard the shot. I think all that happened was just, it, it was. What did she say? It was. She said, why, why, why did you? I was like, why what, man? I didn't know I shoot him. I said, and I did not want to tell her, but she pulled my arm and that gun went out. Who else was in the house when all this happened? I know for a fact. Did he ever try to point it at you? Point the gun at you when y'all were No, he was just, he was too busy trying to get under his chin. He was sitting there holding it up and like he was trying to put it in his mouth. And I kept telling him, DJ, you got three kids, man. God damn, why you want to do this? Did he ever get the gun in his interview is when Mark says, quote, I would never hurt him. I wouldn't wish death on nobody, end quote. The reason this is my favorite quote is because then Mark fails to reenact how the gun was positioned when DJ supposedly had it, when Mark supposedly grabbed it, and when the gun went off. Also, when watching this interview and the reenactment, it's clear that Mark's hands are much closer to the trigger than DJ's. So although I don't believe Mark's story is what actually happened, if it somehow did happen like that, then Mark definitely pulled the trigger because DJ's hands were supposedly up by the barrel of the gun. In this interview, Mark also states that the gun never went into DJ's mouth, but the autopsy stated that it was an intraoral shotgun wound. So those contradict each other completely. I'm leaning towards believing the science side because obviously Mark is lying about a lot of things, but also I don't exactly trust Dr. Grandi at this time due to her other findings. Mark also states that the gun went off when Brandy, who was DJ's wife, pulled Mark's arm. And to me, that seems like he's trying to cover his tracks in case they get him for manslaughter. He's saying, basically, like, I didn't mean to, it was because of her. Although I could not access the files from Mark's polygraph, I was able to see the report from it. 
and the two relevant questions were these. Cop, did you point that gun at DJ? Mark, no. Cop, did you shoot DJ? Mark, no. Then the report stated this, quote, it is the opinion of the examiner that deception was indicated. After being confronted with the fact that deception was indicated, he admitted that there had been an occasion earlier where he pointed another weapon, a pellet rifle, at DJ. Examinee provided some additional information regarding the incident, some being inconsistent with previous statements. End quote. Now, I'm not totally on board with polygraphs because they are faulty. You can like train yourself to pass them. There's a lot of ways to pass them without being truthful. And I think it's the same way with deception. I think certain things could cause you to have deception when you're really not lying. Not that I think Mark is telling the truth here, but I just don't trust polygraphs. However, after this, Mark also changed his account of what happened another five times. I think Mark Twain said it best. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. But in cases when people don't tell the truth, they end up remembering multiple events of what they think they told the police. So the next interview is between P.I. Eccles and David Colburn. David Colburn was a witness to DJ's death and therefore is very prevalent in this case. Besides the victim and the suspect, David and Brandy were the only other witnesses to what happened. This interview is over 10 minutes, which is why I'm not going to play it for you guys. And in addition to that, a lot of it is David stating, I already put that information in the report or I already told the police that, so a lot of it is unproductive. But there are still quite a few things that are very productive throughout the interview. David states at the time of the shooting, Mark and Brandy, who had been previously romantic together, had stopped hooking up, since she was still DJ's wife, and at this time, all three were living together. David also states that before the shooting happened, all of them were getting high, he addresses that his story had changed during police interviews. He states that this is because at first he went along with Mark's story for fear of Mark killing him next. David then states that DJ accidentally got shot, and he is really firm on this through all of his interviews. He does not believe Mark did this on purpose. However, he does admit that Mark had the gun and brought the gun to the living room but he did not see Mark point the gun at DJ. Before 911 came, Mark did change his shirt because, according to David, there was blood on it, probably, and this is once again tampering with evidence. Oddly, at the end of this interview, David is surprised to hear that DJ's death was ruled a suicide. He states that his sister got a call from GBI saying that it was ruled an accidental shooting. There's also a long video of over 30 minutes where Amanda, who is DJ's sister, talks with David Colburn and asks some questions. Once again, because this is so long, I'm not going to include the audio, but I will give you the main points I found while listening to it. Firstly, I want to bring up that David is known to have left the crime scene after DJ was shot, but then came back before 911 arrived because he didn't feel right leaving. And I think in this case, that is a major point because without him, it was just Mark, Brandy, and DJ. And Mark and Brandy's stories contradict each other. But with David in the mix, Brandy's story has more fact behind it, basically, because two people have the same story that go against Mark's. In this interview, David also states that he does not think Mark purposely killed DJ. He believes it was an accident because Mark is not that kind of guy, according to him. However, throughout the conversation, 
We also learned that a few weeks before the show. 92% of households that join Peloton early in the year are still active a year later. Yeah, if you like cycling to EDM. Not just EDM. Try cycling to Broadway hits, take a scenic hike in Iceland on our treadmill, or row to some 80s jams. Because I have so much free time. Whether you have 30 minutes or just five, Peloton can fit any schedule. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton tread, row, or bikes risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Shooting, Mark told Brandy that she could get a check if something happened to DJ. David also believes that Brandy knew Mark had the gun up there. Before the gun that Mark was holding went off, DJ had his hand on the gun near the barrel to try and move it away. David confirms that Mark's finger was on the trigger when the gun went off, after which Mark wiped down the gun, and at this time, Brandy had also touched the gun, so she used a ton of hand sanitizer and changed her clothing before 911 arrived. Here we also get an explanation for why there were multiple 911 calls. In this conversation slash interview, we learn that Mark hung up the calls every time Brandy was getting loud in the background. At one point, she states, quote, he was shot to death, end quote, meaning DJ. When Mark stated that he was trying to grab the gun and get it away from DJ, Brandy is heard saying, quote, that's a lie, end quote. And David also states he doesn't understand how it was ruled a suicide based solely on the angle of the shot. I was unable to find any interviews with Brandy, but I do have the written statement that she gave to P.I. Eccles. Quote, I, Brandy Leanne Ficky, on Wednesday, January 31st, 2018, was spoken to by Eric Eccles, who identified himself to me as a private investigator. This interview took place at DeKalb County Jail in Fort Payne, Alabama. This statement is true and no threats or promises have been made to me. On October 3rd of 2016, I was at Charlie Wambler's trailer when Marshall Payne shot my husband. I was a witness and this is what I saw. Me and DJ stay over with Marshall. We wake up and Marshall offered us meth. We declined. We left him at his camper and went to the trailer to get something to drink and use the restroom. I fixed DJ a drink and went to the bathroom. DJ came and checked on me. We had a short conversation about his mom and Al. He went back to the living room. I finished my hair and went to go to the living room to join DJ. As I made my way, fat boy Scott Colburn shortly led behind me. When I got to the living room area, by the time my eyes met DJ, Marshall Payne came out of the bedroom that was behind DJ, angrily and violently from DJ's left side, holding the gun at a downward angle, yelling at DJ, you goddamn motherfucker, then shot him. After he, Marshall Payne, shot him, DJ, I ran out of the house, scared for my life, screaming for help, hoping someone heard me. I went back in to see if DJ could have been alive. I tried to grab his hand, hoping he was still there. If called to testify, I will say the same. So, in this written statement, we can clearly see or hear that she states that DJ did not commit suicide just like David stated, but yet GBI ruled it a suicide without further investigation. Since this is a hard case with a lot of problems in the investigation and ruling, I wanted to end on a little bit of a better note. At one point, P.I. Eccles chatted with Detective Ellenberg, who worked on DJ's case. Eccles stated that based on all the evidence and the intimate interview with David, he 100% does not believe this was a suicide. He also states that while reviewing Ellenberg's report, he can see that Ellenberg does not believe it is a suicide either. Ellenberg sent a letter to the DA to try and indict on this case. 
and he confirms that he would stick to this report and letter if he was asked to do so in court. Here is that call. Sir. Hey, this is Detective Allenberg returning your call. Hey, hold on a second. Let me take off the speaker. Hold on for a minute. So you can hear. Hey. That better? Yeah, okay. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing good. Hey, I just want to let you know I'm 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 investigating the death of uh, Donald Ficker, DJ. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, and I have I have your your investigation um, report. Okay. And based on what your your interviews and based on the autopsy report that I have, um, and the crime scene photos. I, I took it upon and I went down and, and did an interview with an inmate um, at the Hamilton County Jail yesterday. Okay. And 100%, I do not believe this was a suicide. Okay. And looking at that and looking at the letter that, that, that um, Buzz Franklin sent to you, I'm trying to see what can be done to move this from a suicide to a homicide so it can get the proper justice. And the reason why I'm calling you is because looking at your report, I think that you believe that is not a suicide as well. Uh, well, there's the person that ruled it a suicide is the medical examiner's office. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, the sheriff's office didn't rule that. Um, we can't really. I don't. I don't know of any way to change uh, the ruling. Well, I, I got a meeting. Call. The, the ME just called me. I got to call yep. them back. I got a meeting with them. And, and probably then, have to talk with them and, and see. Uh, what they but say. but 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 based on your investigation, I mean, and the interviews that you've done, shouldn't this at least went to the grand jury for an indictment for uh, manslaughter? Uh, again, that's uh, out of my control. <laughs> I know, I, and, I, and I know I'm not. I don't mean to put you in a, a precarious situation, but I mean I seen yeah. your report, so I know what you wrote, and I know, and I know what the witnesses are saying, and it, it seems to me there's enough evidence to sec to secure an indictment. I just don't understand why that letter was sent, and maybe you can help me out with that. Um, I actually cannot. I, okay. I can't speak for the district attorney. Um, uh, I don't know. Um, but you're doing the investigation. Like with <laughs> no, I know. He's going to be next on my list. and We got history, so I know he knows who I am. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. I was I was the investigator on the Tanya Craft case. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So so we got history. Um, not good history, <laughs> but we got history. But, but, some there, anyway. <laughs> but there is some there. But I, I just wanted to let you know that I support your findings and that I, 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 by reading your report, I know that you believe that it's, it, it's not a suicide because you would have never sent it to the DA for an indictment. Um, my, my thing is now is if, if called upon, would you support that? In other words, if, if, if the DA comes back to you or something like that and say, do you think you have enough evidence to support uh, a homicide, is that something that you would say yes to? Um, homicide, no. Uh, manslaughter. Homic yeah, homicide, manslaughter. I'm not talking murder. I mean, homicide, okay. yeah, yeah, homicide is the death. But I, I think I don't think it was murder. I mean, I can't prove. I don't know if there was an right. intent there. But, but the fact that he went and got the shotgun and held it to his head, <laughs> I mean, I, hell, that's assault with a deadly weapon. I mean, it. There should have been some charges, and, and would you? And my question is, as the detective on the case, would you hold to that? Uh, yes, that's why I sent it over to the district attorney's okay. office, you know, for that. But yes. well, that's that's what I that's why I wanted to talk to you, man. I appreciate that. Okay. So, no so problem. just so you know, I'm, and I'm gonna be, and, and you, you're in Walker County, so you're not in Catoosa County, so I'm sure you're familiar with the Tanya Craft case. Um. Uh, I've heard of it. I haven't yeah. read it. Okay, yeah. well, well, you, you'll see my name pops up a lot on that. 
and 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 I just wanted to commend you because I, I support your investigation and and your findings. And I'm, and and my and my only role is to get justice. I, it, and when I say get justice, I think if someone shoots somebody in the face, accidental or not, you shouldn't have got the shotgun and put it to his head. So, 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 so that's something that a jury should decide, not a, a DA saying there's not enough evidence when I believe that there is. So, I, just so you, know, I'm, I'm gonna meet with the DA. I mean, not the DA. I'm, a, I'm gonna meet with the ME, and I'm gonna let them know what what I found because you know, even, well, I don't have. I mean, you know, because you know, you you knew DJ was right-handed too, right? Uh, yes, I was told that. Yeah, yeah. So. Even even the placement where he shot, if he was committing suicide, he wouldn't have shot on the left side of his face. But anyway, um, but I just wanted to give you a heads up as a detective, and I left a message with your captain. You called me first, so you can let your captain know because I was going to talk to him, let him know the same thing, and and just okay. and just say and just yeah, just let him know, so you don't have to call me back. And then okay. I'll, I'll I'll keep you in touch on what the ME says. Okay. Uh, All right. Okay. All right. Thank you, detective. If you are active on social media, then please check out and use hashtag justice for DJ to spread the word about this case. You can go share this podcast, any other podcast that discusses his case, or any posts that have something to do with his case. It'll just help bring media attention. There may be a wrongful death trial coming soon, but hopefully it does not have to come to that. The family just wants law enforcement to admit they messed up and rule this a homicide or at least manslaughter, as it should have been in the first place. Next week on The Great Unsolved, I'm going to be doing an update episode. I will update on any new information in any of the cases I've covered. A lot are really old cases or cold cases, so they may not have any new information, but there are a few that do, and I wanted to update you guys on those. Check out our new website, greatunsolvedpod.com, and follow us on Twitter at greatunsolved and Instagram at greatunsolvedpodcast. Stay safe and have a great day. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Wireless headphones. That'll be $200. I'll use my Capital One Quicksilver card. Now that's a hit. You used the Capital One Quicksilver card, which makes you the hero of every purchase. With Quicksilver, you earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere. I wanted running music, but unlimited 1.5% cash back is pretty heroic. Good instincts. Every hero needs a theme song. The Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.